Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, facts are facts for the workforce of tomorrow. The bottom line is the less flexible you are, the higher attrition you're going to see and the less engagement you're going to experience. And that is a fact as offices start reopening all over this country, no matter what kind of employer you are. The Pentagon wins when it goes outside its own walls. I think one of the best decisions the Navy did at Navy Marine Corps and actually DOD was to start having our uniformed personnel work more closely with the civilian population in the warfare centers, then also having some of them go work in industry. And laying the groundwork for the war of tomorrow. What we need to do is be able to pass information about positive friendlies throughout this uh, you know, space, and it's going to be moving fast and changing rapidly. It's Monday, May 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies have three new tools from the Office of Personnel Management to assess skills of potential hires. The tools include an updated General Schedule Qualifications Operating Manual, a list of frequently asked questions about qualifications, assessment, and hiring, and a new guide to better occupational questionnaires. The administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, Mina Shung, says her organization's had success with a skills-based hiring approach instead of requiring formal education and training credentials. Three senators are pushing their appropriator colleagues for a cash injection for the Technology Modernization Fund. Democrat Mark Warner and Republicans Steve Daines and Tom Tillis write in a letter to fellow members that the fund needs at least the $300 million the Biden administration requested for fiscal 2023. The senators cite huge demand for the billion dollars the fund got from the American Rescue Plan and the huge need across government. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. A long list of CIOs and CTOs across governments coming to the UiPath Together Summit to discuss automation in government. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, June 14th. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Office of Personnel Management's new Federal Workforce Priorities Report includes four primary priorities and four enabling priorities. A memo from the Associate Director of the Office of Personnel Management, Rob Shriver, says agencies will outline strategies for implementing the priorities in their human capital operating plans. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. I asked Terry Girton about this the other day. Which one of these eight really matter? She straightened me out on that. That's in the archives at thedailyscooppodcast.com. What do you take away from this? You told me before we turned the recorder on about a connection that you see here that you think is really important. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. And if anyone can straighten you out, it's Terry. Um, So (laughs) uh, follow her guidance is all I'm going to say. Um, But honestly, the majority of these priorities and a priority is a priority, you know, as we've been speaking about. But, you know, you have these primary prioritized priorities and then you have these enabling priorities. And and the cool thing about it is they all map very well um, and it's in the report to the PMA and the specific objectives there, but they're also, the majority of them are people enabled. And so, you know, that people focus is really a key element to get any of these done. Um, But in particular, you know, the top four and a couple of those enabling priorities as well that comprise the whole eight. It's really a holistic approach too. And I love how they outlined, you know, some best and promising practices that align with each of those priorities as well from some of the agencies that are doing really great things. 
Um, so I encourage anyone who hasn't read it yet to take a look because it really does put you on the path to thinking a lot more strategically. And if you consider the four priorities, it's they're they're all people focused. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes today at the dailyscooppodcast.com too, so people can find it pretty easily. Mike primary takeaway from reading those eight priorities was a good thing. And that is agencies are already doing a fair amount of these things. The memo says you got to choose two of them to prioritize over the next four years of your strategic plan. But I just think the last Chico that I had on the program was Jessica Palatka from Commerce. And without knowing this yet, she talked about a lot of these elements as things that they're doing at Commerce already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, the 2018 priorities report was a great launching or starting point as well. Um, But, you know, what's interesting is that the pandemic really did force agencies to reprioritize and get more strategic in terms of forecasting and really trying to enhance, you know, employee engagement, the employee experience, that evolution that includes well-being diversity, inclusion, equity, accessibility, and belonging. Um, We're talking about technology, of course, and modernization and how that relates to the people side as well as the system sides and operation side. So I think uh, to your point, Francis, you know, agencies really were able to get ahead even before this was published because by necessity, we were having to really refocus and think more long-term and more strategic overall. I saw a lot of parallels in these priorities too to kind of the weaker spots of the federal employee viewpoint survey just came out what a month or month and a half ago, something like that. I think, um, Mm -hmm. this seems to be pretty quick turnaround, uh, in, in an attempt to address some of the areas where the government seems to be losing a little bit of ground. Is that a fair read on my part? You think Mika? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you think about some of the questions asked in the feds, even as it was restructured last year, much differently than ever before. And so, um, it'll be interesting because we weren't really able to draw those year to year comparisons that we were in the past, but thinking about career pathing, um, leveraging assessments, you know, those data tools, um, of course, the technology to be able to get the job done as well as it relates to recruitment, selections, hiring, succession planning, and then career pathing, which, as you mentioned, are really integra- integral portions um, that relate to employee engagement scores overall. The response rate to the FEVs this year was way down. Do you think, I know statistically, 30-some percent response rate is still considered pretty good, but it's way way down. I think there was one year it was like in the 70s or something. Like the, the, mm-hmm. the, the response is really, really off. If you're in a chief human capital office in an agency, does that give you any pause as to what kind of stock you put into the FEVs results for this year, Mika? Um, if I'm answering, honestly, I think it's an opportunity to message that this year's results look a lot differently for those really critical and important reasons. One of being, you know, which that they did a different cycle time than usual. They also did a sample size than they have before. And so there are a lot of differences that affect those scores and results. If I were a Chico in an agency right now, I would be making sure that, you know, the workforce understands the results and how it relates or not to past results. And the fact that the new Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey for 2022 will be opening very soon, in fact, in a couple of weeks, I hear. Um, and so trying to gear up for that and to encourage more participation, because as you know, you know, the more folks participate and weigh in on their perceptions and feedback, the better the results are overall. Is that 
still valid, though. I mean, I think one one of the reasons that Chico's were able to put a lot of stock into the Fev's reports in the past is exactly what you said. You could tell when you had the really high response rate, this is pretty yeah. credible information about yeah, what my people think. Larger, right? That's yeah. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And now it, I, I, my fear, I guess, as an outside observer is that we get into a, a, a loop where the employees say, well, I'm not sure that responding really makes much of a difference. So I'm not going to respond. The data is not as good. So the human capital community goes, well, we're not sure if we should really act on these numbers. Is that a worry inside the human capital community and government, do you think? Or am I kind of just panicking for no reason? I think it's a concern if you hinge and weigh too heavily on those results as a sole source of information. And I again, back to my comment earlier around some of the benefits that the pandemic had as a result on the workforce is that we had to get creative and find more frequent ways to check in. In fact, you know, there are government-wide pulse surveys that are coming out now. Again, it's a sample size only, but that's to supplement some of the information that's collected at the FEBS level, you know, on a once a year basis. And then agencies have been doing a really great job with helping to encourage leadership and management kinds of check-ins more regularly, the ability to communicate and connect more and really keep a pulse on what's going on on a more frequent basis in different ways, whether that's, again, pulse survey data that they're doing feedback sessions, listening sessions, culture facilitated sessions, um, and the like. And so I think there could be a risk, you know, that the participation rates still don't look as great as they have in the past, but, you know, the workforce has been through a lot and we're asking more of them each and every day. In fact, that's a reason why that focus on well-being and overall, you know, mental health even is such a critical component to the employee experience. So about the FEVs numbers, you wrote this to me last week, dips in scores correlate with less fully remote and expanded telework options. Uh, Friday's Feds Group News Countdown was Angie Bailey and Jeff Neal, both former Chico's DHS. Mm-hmm. And Jeff chose two stories as his most important story of the week. They were both about back to office. Both uh, EEOC and OPM are having kind of run-ins with AFGE right now, the employee union, about back to office. And the leaders of both of those organizations saying you got to come back to work at least a certain number of days a week. Will, do you think we'll see more of that? And what does that mean? What's the long-term implication of that, do you think, for keeping the people that you have that are really important? I'm reading a lot in kind of more general media outlets about private sector companies that are worried about their new employees and how those new employees integrate into the culture of an organization if they've never met uh, a whole bunch of the people on their teams. What's your take on, on the role that back to office and how it's handled will play in what we see in the new FEVs that's about to start or just in the in the pulse surveys that OMB is doing in the work that the individual agencies do and so on well uh I'm going to keep it really simple and (laughs) thank you (laughs) I'm going to try I'm going to try to keep it simple Look, this is happening all across the private industry. It doesn't matter what kind of employer you are, academia, nonprofit, state and local, or public sector, or your Fortune 500 best place to work. If you are going to overly prescribe and take away the heightened levels of flexibility, and I don't mean just in location, because clearly not every job can qualify for a fully remote or even partially remote kind of opportunity. 
I'm speaking about the kind of flexibility that workers want. And time and time again, surveys from all over the best thought leadership, best employers, and the federal government point to employees want a choice. And so if you are being overly prescriptive after two years of giving heightened flexibility in the kind of work schedule that people were able to select based on those other priorities outside of work, which are their personal lives, um, to be able to bring their best to work when it makes sense to and still focus on that mission. That means if you're taking away the ability to choose which days of the week, or you're saying that, you know, if a holiday falls on a week where we expect you to be in four days or what have you, then you, your telework day is away. The bottom line is the less flexible you are, the higher attrition you're going to see and the less engagement you're going to experience. And that is a fact as offices start reopening all over this country, no matter what kind of employer you are. And the risk for the federal government is this. We are already at critical, critical staffing levels for age 30 and below, under 10%. In fact, most are under eight. And so if you consider the rates by which those demographic of workers are deciding to leave organizations. Many, in fact, new hires are leaving within one year of hire. And you go and take a look at your FEB scores as it relates to the percentages of employees who are indicating they're going to leave, either for another federal job or for another reason or even retirement. You are going to be in for it if you don't offer the kinds of flexibility for people to choose how they can best bring their work to work while still holding them accountable, still making sure they're physically present when need be and being responsive to the customer. Make a cross. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks, my friend. Thank you for having me, Francis. You can find a link to the OPM memo in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. On Tuesday's show, I'll take you to the Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference. ACT IAC is hosting today and tomorrow. You'll learn what the attendees are learning, hear from some of the keynote speakers, too. One of those is Brian Campo, the Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Coast Guard. He's on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Navy's building an unmanned fleet to complement its crewed fleet. Navy leaders say the combination will give the service a more flexible, more capable, and more cost-effective fleet. Janice Haith is Strategic Client Director for Department of the Navy at Oracle. She's former Deputy Chief Information Officer of the Navy. Janice, welcome. It's great to see you again. How do you take a concept like a hybrid fleet and when you know that's what the end result is that you want and decide the technologies that you want to apply to that, to getting to that goal, and how you're going to apply those technologies? Welcome, Janice. Well, thank you, Francis. Good to be on your show and in your new role. Actually, you know, I think that having a hybrid fleet is actually a good thing for the United States Navy and, and the Marine Corps, because a lot of people forget the Marine Corps embarks with the Navy. And so whatever the Navy does, the Marine Corps has to also work with it. I think when you look at the technologies, I mean, we have so many uh, varied technologies now, particularly with artificial intelligence. But if, if when you look at this, you're going to have to start with one the shift class, because the different classes of ship have different aspects to it. So a sub will be different from a surface ship versus a carrier. Uh, and, I, and I know some people say a surface ship and a carrier are the same, but they're not. They're bigger. It's bigger. And then you have to look at the manpower. And what if you go hybrid, what, what people do you not need on the ship that you can have do the work on shore 
And, and then what true skill sets do you need on the ship or whatever the class of ship is? And, and given that the Navy and, you know, I tell people this all the time, the Navy can't turn a ship around on a dime. You know, it's not like a plane. And so it takes a lot more logistical management to get that hybrid capability, however you want to do it on a ship. But you have to not just develop it, but test it and where the communications relays. That's going to be the big thing. Is it self-contained in the ship? Or is it going to require a communications relay? And when they're far out at sea, you know, there's a there's a point there where they don't have the greatest communications. It's satellites. Satellites can, um, you know, become interfere when they have cloud cover. All kinds of things are going on. So I think you look at the technology from the people standpoint. You have to look at it, the ship and the ship class. And then the schedules for the ship maintenance, and I'm telling you, ship maintenance schedules, they vary from uh, what they call a woo, a window of opportunity, the small ones, to the large ones that can be six months or longer. So I think this is a good idea. I think it's going to take some significant planning. It can be done. I think it's an excellent opportunity to advance the Navy to the next generation. It's fascinating to me, Janice, because in that description of how you would kind of lay that foundation... I didn't hear much, if anything, about specific technologies. That's the right way to do it from an orderly perspective, I imagine. You think, what are we trying to accomplish first? And then put the puzzle pieces around the frame, I guess. Is, is that, am I on the right track? Well, you, you are. But I think, too, I, again, you have to look at the ship class. So on every ship, there's different technologies. So a carrier has different technologies in a sub. And a surface ship has different technologies than a carrier. And that's based on what those what those ships do in a time of peace and as well as a time of war. And every capability can't be on every ship, because if you've ever been on a ship, you know, the rooms that they hold communication in are small. So now that they're they're, uh, they're much more agile and flexible. But if you wanted to do artificial intelligence, so you wanted to put a, a, a new technology out that allowed them to hit the target a little bit more precise. The the You can do that, but you have to look at whether it's going to be on the shore with a remote capability back to the ship or vice versa. How many people it has to be to actually oversee it? Because I, I know for a fact that when they've done some hybrid technologies before, the number of people that had to work that on shore side versus on the ship was double. And so, you know, is it really gaining us an efficiency? So I think it's all doable. I think the only way you can do it, though, is to look at class of ship, the mission of the ship, and how it works in a peacetime environment versus how it's going to work in a wartime environment, given what goes on in the world. Let's pull back from the idea of the hybrid fleet. Think more conceptually about a some generic uh, effort that the Navy or another service is going to undertake, Janice. What, what does the... What does the, the best workable planning and conceptualization timeline look like? What, does, what's, what are the milestones that you've seen throughout your career that lead to a successful delivery of whatever the end technology is for whatever the service is going to use it for? So I think that's definitely where the partnership between the warfighter and the acquisition organization is going to be involved. That, that planning is absolutely critical. Obviously, money is a factor, but you've got to start there. What's the requirement? What allows the warfighter to do their job 
whether it's peacetime or wartime, and acquisition. What can you do to deliver this? And when can you deliver it? And what vendors are out there that can support the delivery of this? Because every vendor can. And on a ship, there are specialized vendors that do certain things. You know, we have small vendors and that work for Navy that do very, very specialized things. They're like one and two shops, or, or it's some people call them mom and pop shops, very small, less than 100 people, some less than 50. So I think you have to take all those things in, into account. I mean, I'm sure you could do some planning, uh, some basic planning, get the basics done within six months. But I think actually moving this forward, it's going to take uh, probably three to four years. I mean, it takes on average 10 years to deliver a ship. So you can see it taking about that. And, and truthfully, it may be the technology with their plan in 10 years now. It's obsolete by the time they deliver. That's right. Are there steps that that combination of warfighter acquisition and technology uh, organizations can follow? Or is it completely dependent on what the capability is that is under development? Is each one different because each outcome is supposed to be different? So each one's slightly different, but they also come together and they have some similarities. So they have appropriate governance boards that look at this. They have a, a lot of people don't know us, but they have a lot of acquisition and warfighter people that work side by side together to help do this so they can move it along. But it's talking to the fleet. You have to talk to the fleet, the people that are actually out there on the ship. Um, you have to also look at what can the manufacturer deliver when, when, and is it something they even have in their production capability or do they have to build or add something to it? There's so many factors. So the boards help do that. The oversight, the budget will drive some of that. Um, but I think the CNO, the commandant and all of the uh, warfighting um, organizations, as well as the commanders of the fleet have to come together with acquisition and say, Hey, we want to do this. And this is the timeline. Can you make it happen? If we can make it happen, which vendors and how do we do this so that it's fair competition, but we get it done when we need to? And first and foremost, is it secure? Is it have the appropriate cybersecurity mechanism? Yeah. Um, that acquisition to warfighter connection has been challenging for the Defense Department, probably since there's been a Defense Department in 1947. And it's not peculiar to the Navy. It's all the services. It's OSD. It's a whole operation. Are you, Do you think that all of the efforts that the department has taken over the past, well, 15 years that I've been paying attention, um, is getting after it, Janice? Are, are we seeing improvements in the ability of the warfighter to explain to acquisition and to IT, this is what I need to be able to do. And then for acquisition and IT to be able to say, this is the best way that we would recommend to go about getting that outcome that you want. Yeah, I think it's actually much better. I think one of the best decisions the Navy did at Navy Marine Corps and actually DOD was to start having our uniform personnel work more closely with the civilian population in the warfare centers, then also having some of them go work in industry. Right. They do those exchange programs. And so they get a better flavor for, hey, this is how fast they can ramp up to do whatever it is we need them to do this. They can't ramp up for us to build a, another widget because it takes too long. So we can't expect that to be delivered in the time you want. It's, it's much more complicated. You have to look at all aspects of, of what the requirement is. But I think it's much, much better than it was when I first started working for, the, for DLD. It's, it's much better. And to your point about um, this is how long it would take to ramp up a widget, it's uh, I think 
uniform personnel and civilians in DOD are also understanding from the perspective of the DIB that um, the number of widgets, for example, or the flow of widgets or how many each year or whatever also is important to industry where I'm, I wonder if that visibility was always as clear as it is today. It's, it's clearer today than it was, I'd say, 15, 20 years ago, because there's so many factors that control how many widgets can be built. It's not just money, it's time, it's skill set of the people that build these things, it's understanding the, um, the actual technology. And that's where the industry government relationship becomes so critical, because a lot of our uniform personnel, when they retire, they do a certain amount of time, they go to industry. So they do help inform and they provide that information flow of, of, you know, when you're building this widget, you need to think about X, Y, and Z as you're building it. You know, you want to preserve life. You want to get the mission done, but you have to have the balance and you have to be secure. Janice Hayes, it's great analysis as always. It's wonderful to see you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate it. You can read more about the Navy's unmanned fleet in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches June 15th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Army's contribution to Joint All-Domain Command and Control Project Convergence will include a wolf pack. The service tested the concept at its Experimental Demonstration Gateway event. Colonel Chad Chasteen is Director of Operations for Future Vertical Lift at Army Futures Command. Colonel, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What is wolf pack and what did you learn about it at EDGE 2022? Welcome. And thanks for having me on here. So the one of the things we wanted, one of the many things we wanted to accomplish at during EDGE is experimentation with air-launched effects. And uh, the wolf pack is how we characterize the behaviors. So a lot of people think of unmanned aerial systems and drones as, you know, just that quadcopter that you see out over an NFL game and somebody's controlling it and managing it, and it only has one function. But what we're experimenting with is how do we extend the reach of the future attack reconnaissance aircraft and how do we penetrate integrated air defense systems and that's what we really want to do with in the future with future vertical lift is extend our reach because the enemy's trying to keep us as far away as possible it's called standoff and they've made a pretty uh, advanced anti-access aerial denial also known as a2ad technology through integrated air defense systems that makes it very difficult for us to uh, to basically get close to find out where they are, what they're doing in order, in order to penetrate that and open up maneuver corridors and decision-making options for the ground commander, we need to get these sensors out there. And that's what, and that's what these air launch effects will be able to do in the future. And what we're seeing right now through experimentation in the sandbox that we call edge that provides us a vehicle, a platform for which we can experiment. So we found some interesting things out, Francis, we were able to, launch these air launched effects against actual threat systems, replicating adversary systems. And we shuffled them daily, put them in different places all throughout that Western de desert at Dugway so that, you know, we would know that the operators who are launching would know exactly where they're at. And so we made it difficult. And what we were able to do is through a variety of different payload systems and cooperative 
behavior backed by artificial intelligence, the wolf pack was able to hunt and kill. So we, we deployed seven. Um, you can imagine these are not your typical drones, but these are backed by an intelligent type of behavior in which they, they're given a mission. And at that point, we're not really controlling it. We're actually struggling with the language a little bit because people were like, well, how is this helicopter pilot in the future going to launch six or seven of these air launch effect drones and then be able to control them? Well, that person's not going to be expected to control. What's going to happen is they're going to be pre-programmed to do the tasks. And, and that's why General Rugen, uh, future vertical lift director, likes to refer to it as the wolf pack because they do have behaviors. There's a leader. There's a follower. There's one that's on its way out there to, to detect, identify, locate, report enemy positions and inform the other members of the pack of where the enemy is located at. The next one uh, is coming in to verify that location. Another one might be set to jam the frequencies to make that make it impossible for that system to, to know what is happening or be able to communicate. Or we can uh, confuse we can confuse and decoy. We can have one of our air launched effects go out there and replicate something else flying and make it think it's something that it's not. And then obviously you can bring in the right hook and that's the kill part. So we can close the joint kill chain by launching. So future vertical lift is going all the way as far forward as possible, penetrating integrated air defense systems, launching air launched effects with these intelligent behaviors, finding the enemy and either opening up the option for the commander to kill it through joint platforms, such as provided by the Air Force, the Navy, Marines, or the Army, or we can do it ourselves with a lethal payload. I hope that answered your question, Francis. It does, sir. When you talk about extending the reach, as you did a moment ago, the phrase that came to my mind was pushing the envelope. You're trying to stretch yeah. the capability of the equipment that you have. How do you yes. think about that, I guess, more from a philosophical perspective? Like, how do you examine what you have and say, what can we do to make this do more, farther, faster, or whatever the measures are? And then how do you measure in the aftermath of it whether you got what you were going for, Colonel? Yeah, that's a great question, and we can unpack quite a bit. So, like we were talking about, what is our adversary trying to do? They're trying to make a layered defense so we can't reach them. So imagine this, you step into the ring. And the fighter on the other side is got 10 feet arms. <laughs> how do we, I mean, you're like, what, how do we even get in, get close? Right. Well, what we're trying to do is not even get in the ring. We're trying to stand outside of the ring, confuse him. Um, he doesn't even know we're there yet. Uh, find him and then hit him from a direct, a, you know, the time and place of our choosing from what we call standoff. And that's what future vertical lifts going to do, Francis, is uh, the helicopter of the future that we're designing the requirements for and working with uh, 23, you know, just at Edge, we worked with 23 DOD and industry partners is we all can get into this sandbox together under a tactical scenario. And we determine, are these requirements coming together? Is this, is this what we want? And so we can, so we can try before we buy, right? And then this is a, a mature use of taxpayer money because we're we're really trying out the technology, and we define these requirements on paper. We try them in the lab. We do it in simulation. But when you go out in the dirt, you can really see the difference. And then when you're talking about data collection, in fact, we had Army Test and Evaluation Commander ATEC 
And these experts are responsible for leading the data collection and analysis efforts at EDGE. So we had 45 of those folks um, and they were positioned everywhere we were launching technology. And, and we used a lot of technology out at EDGE and we combined it all in, you know, over a two week period. Then we brought it all together in a tactical scenario against, uh, you know, against an adversary, adversarial systems. But the bottom line is the enemy is trying to keep us as far away as possible and deny us that access, creating the physical distance. And what we're trying to do is, is do the same. What we're trying to do is penetrate that distance to inform decision-making but also we want to do, we want to find the enemy and engage them from the farthest distance possible. And we, we believe the future vertical lift and what we're doing out at edge, we're going to be able to do that. The future aircraft that were uh, prototypes would be about 85% built right now are going to go just about twice as far and twice as fast. The uh, every person that I've ever talked to in the army always talks about whatever the subject is uh, allies and partners and the work that they do uh, with the army uh, and the yes. other services the same you had seven international partners australia canada france germany italy netherlands and united kingdom at this exercise what did they bring to the exercise and what do you hope they took away from the exercise colonel yeah we uh we're, we're very privileged to be able to work with our international partners. And, you know, my boss likes to say winning matters, but winning together matters more. And, and if you look back over the history, you know, especially just in this last century, we don't, we don't do anything alone. We do it as a part of a coalition, as a part of a greater team. And we are stronger when we inter when we work together. So what's great about edge is that it gave us a chance to do to focus on what we call interoperability. So, how are their systems working with our systems and vice versa? So, the, I'll just uh, highlight real quick the three. The Germans brought not only technology, but they brought an infantry squad from their country equipped with the German future soldier system. And this is a command and control system that they wear as radio communication allows data and voice communication to occur simultaneously. And we plug that all into our network. And um, and then I'll talk about the network in just a second, because that is really key. And then also they, they brought their own data systems, you know, night vision goggle, thermal imaging, laser range finding, and they integrated all with us and we were able to put them in the tactical scenario and allow them even to call for fire to, you know, bring to bear on the enemy. Um, Italians also brought an infantry squad. And they brought JTACs who specialized in calling for fire to bring in effects, uh, you know, kinetic effects down on the enemy. They brought a targeting and communication command kit, another digitized system, uh, enabling communication from the ground to the air and across the space by passing information digitally. And the Netherlands brought an interesting technology, and that's the Joint Air Ground Gateway, or JAG. And that's a command and control tactical node system, a tactical server, if you will. Um, we call it a tactical operations command in a box or talk in a box. And so this is a very portable system, which was allowing um, them to receive and push data messages, receive intelligence, push it out to the operational edge. And we integrated that with our network. And that, to me, it's, it's really easy for us to all get enamored with the trucks, with the UAV and and I am, by the way, but but and also the missiles and the rockets and and all the different kinetic things that we're doing. But what's really fascinating is if we can communicate, if we can see the same thing 
then their commanders, our commanders can communicate and what we call a common operating picture. And that's what was interesting about this JAG. So we were able to pass information um, back and forth and see the same problems on as the battlefields developing. So imagine this, the future attack reconnaissance aircraft surrogates are flying out there. They launch these air launched effects. So these hunter teams, hunter killer teams, the wolf packs are out there trying to find the enemy and they are finding the enemy and then reporting it back digitally, autonomously. The position, a small picture, it's called a chip out. It's got position locating information and that's showing up on a handheld device in the back of the aircraft as they're flying in on an air assault and the soldier in the back is no longer in the dark. He's got a tactical screen where he can see where the enemy positions are starting to populate um, throughout the battle space. And then you look at the JAG, the Joint Air Ground Gateway. The Netherlands are starting to see the same enemy situation as that's emerging. They can also see friendly positions, and we can see theirs on this digital space. And that's what we're trying to get to. In the future, ideally, we're getting down to what we call a single pane of glass. So we don't have, you know, classified screens, unclassified screens, sensitive but unclassified. We're trying to merge these things and to get the right information in the right place so we can have a common operating picture to protect the force, pre prevent fratricide, and maximize decision space in real time. Colonel, I'm almost out of time, but it strikes me the maybe the most important test that happened in Edge 22 was that confirmation that the network performs the way that you want it to because if convergence feeds jadc2 and the goal is information to any shooter anytime including partners and allies that's that's the coin of the realm isn't it that's the most important thing that that shooter will need when he or she needs to make a decision Yes, I agree with you, Francis. The network is a weapon system and, and data is the ammunition. And what we really have to do is we need, we're going to be, satellites going to be denied, GPS will be denied and, you know, peer fight. So what we need to do is be able to pass information about positives and friendlies throughout this, uh, you know, space. And it's going to be moving fast and changing rapidly. And I think information dominance is going to be the key. And that's what's exciting. One of the many things that we did out at Edge with our 23 partners, we accomplished uh, 67 technical objectives, 34 first-time events, and we did it as a team with what we call the coalition of the willing, people who are just want to get out in the sandbox. And it's hard work, and the days are very long, and the network takes work to set up. And But once we get it going, the, the learning is happening, and we are we're accomplished. We accomplished a lot. We could talk a lot longer than these seven or eight minutes, but I'm real um, grateful that you had me on the day, Francis. It was a great talking to you. Colonel Chad Chastine, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. You can read more about Edge 22 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday afternoon on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon from the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference with the Coast Guard's Deputy CIO, Brian Campo. 
I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.